Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. In this episode, we talk with Brian Southwell about his new book, Social Networks and Popular Understanding of Science and Health, Sharing Disparities. Dr. Southwell is a senior research scientist at the nonprofit research institute RTI International. He is also a faculty member at both the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and Duke University. He writes about human engagement with electronic information, especially with regard to science and health, and is interested in the constraints of memory and the amplifying effects of social networks. Welcome to the Society Pages podcast called Office Hours. Here today to talk about your book, Social Networks and Popular Understanding of Science and Health, Sharing Disparities. So welcome to the podcast. Excellent. Thanks so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. So the goal of this book, as you wrote it, is to document gaps between groups of people and the way that they share information, specifically about health and science. So what prompted this? Why is it important to describe the way that information flows today? Well, you know, Sarah, I was really inspired by a paradox. Um, We are awash in information, you know, everywhere we turn. And yet at the same time, um, we also have lots of evidence that suggests that not all that information is getting into everybody's hands. And so while we're in this moment when, um, it seems if you listen to you know, local television news or uh, you know, look online, you know, social networks are everywhere. And we've kind of rediscovered um, you know, this old phenomenon, but now it seems to be you know, everywhere with regards to social media and connections between people. Nonetheless, um, there are real disparities in information sharing um, that I think have consequence, particularly when it comes to um, you know, thinking about health and science. And so that was something that uh, I um, found theoretical inspiration and um, you know, lots of empirical evidence to suggest that it was worth um, you know, putting an argument together, which is what I did with this book. Mm-hmm. So what did you find? Why aren't people you know, more equal in their tendency to share information around them? So, you know, there are uh, a number of reasons why um, people differ. Um, some of it has to do just with the simple realization that uh, networks differ. They differ in size and structure, and uh, I think a trap that um, you know, many people fall into is uh, you know, the notion that in 2014, um, you may be hyper-connected you know, you know, online. You might have uh, what seem to be you know, uh, thousands of um, you know, connections at your fingertips um, you know, via Twitter, and to not recognize that um, not everybody's in that same boat. Um, is, is an important part. So um, you know, just simple disparities in, in terms of the size um, and nature of networks is one uh, important dimension. But it's also, I think, really important to recognize that people don't talk about all topics um, equally as well, or even have you know, shared understanding or interest um, you know, in that. And so um, you, know, we, uh, you might think about, you know, for example, um, you know, reference to string theory. And um, a physicist might think about that, you know, very differently, um, you know, than maybe you know you would. You might think about uh, your band or something like <laughs> right. that. You know? um, and so, you know, even just basic concepts um, are not as likely to go you know, viral or to flourish in all networks, um, you know, equally. 
And so that's that's also something that leads to disparities. The book isn't really just simply about the fact that um, you know some people are more connected than others. I really try to look at the nuances of information flow and to um, predict uh, differences on the basis of um, you know topical uh, differences, uh, network structure, uh, but all kinds of other um, you know factors as well. Some people, in terms of temperament, personality, are more outgoing than others, yeah. and that's something that really matters um, in ways that we don't quite appreciate. Sometimes. Right. So just to dive into the book a bit more, is there a particular case that you can bring to light to us that sort of illustrates the way that information is being shared? Well, you know, there are actually a number of um, examples uh, throughout the book, but um, one that we could talk about, um, you know, I'm talking to you here at the moment sitting in North Carolina, but you're uh, you're back in in Minnesota, so I'll talk to one that's local to to you there. Um, I worked with uh, folks at the Minnesota Department of Health for a number of years uh, on uh, using viral approaches or referral approaches to try to get information out about their uh, cancer screening programs to uh, the underinsured and underinsured, uh, uninsured populations in uh, Minnesota. And um, what we found was that relying on a so-called refer-a-friend program, uh, which people could refer in friends or family members um, on the basis of having People who have participated themselves had the opportunity to, to nominate, refer other people into this um, mammography program. Was that uh, first of all, not much um, referral actually occurred. Some did, um, but not as much as you might expect. And there were really important disparities, such that uh, people that were in zip codes and neighborhoods where there was quite a bit of what some might label social capital uh, or um, you know connections between people, there was a lot of referral that occurred. But in other places, places where you might worry a bit more about people being more marginalized generally, um, you saw less of this referral occurring. And so what in that instance, you, we started out uh, with an eye on using a refer-a-friend program to increase access to information about free cancer screening, and you end up reifying um, new disparity. Yeah. And that was something that um, really is kind of at the crux of something that I'm worried about. It's not to suggest that we shouldn't uh, you know, think about the ways that people are ensconced in social networks, and we should think about trying to encourage them to refer to others. It's just, um, in the abstract, there's some uh, dynamics that we might worry about. Right. So beyond that, what are some more of these sort of deep implications of how information is shared? And, you know, feel free to draw from another example in the book if it's helpful. Um, yeah. What kind of outcomes do we see that are also unequal? So one thing that I worry about, um, you know, quite a bit is the excitement that um, you know government um, professionals and uh, communication professionals and others um, you know currently hold uh, with regards to social media, uh, and which is one element of thinking about connections between people. And insofar as we turn our campaigns over um, wholesale or you know largely to um, efforts where we're expecting or hoping things. You know, information to go viral as a cost-effective way of spreading information. I'm worried that um, not all the information is going to get in the hands of folks that we might want it to. So as a matter of practice, um, there's a cautionary role here. Um, but I also think that um, there is important reason for us not to be overly reliant on what's happening uh, in the social media sphere as an indicator of public opinion. Um, you know, we saw an example of this um, Earlier last spring, uh, Pew uh, Research um, came out with a report uh, which decent evidence to suggest that, uh, you know, public sentiment as expressed on Twitter is not really necessarily equivalent to that which is latent 
you know, in terms of public opinion more broadly. Um, and so we see not only you know, more or less conversation, but we also see different types of conversation occurring. And, and th this is another um, dimension of the book that uh, I think is potentially compelling for some people. Um, you know, the one example here um, is during the H1N1 uh, yeah, outbreak a couple of years ago, uh, we saw quite a bit of polarized discussion so that um, we saw different networks talking about vaccination for H1N1, but talking about it in very different ways. So, you know, depending on what type of network you were um, you know, located in, you may have been surrounded by positive um, enforcing uh, information with regards to, um, uh, you know, the vaccination, or you might have been you know, really discouraged, and it wasn't necessarily, you know, uniform, um, you know, everywhere. I, I also uh, worry about some of these dynamics when you think about, um, you know, the popularization and our, our of information and, and our tendency to look at what's out there as an indicator or forecast of what can be. Um, in other words, as um, we understand public understanding of science, uh, I worry if we look at just what's popular uh, by virtue of um, current conversation, that we may be um, you know, missing opportunities for future you know, education. You know, an example of this is um, you know, this past summer, I, I did a quick back the envelope um, you know, calculation to look at uh, you know, social media activity with regards to two different topics. On the one hand, um, there was conversation uh, with regards to climate change. Uh, we've reached some important thresholds in the past year or so. Um, it's a, an important time in terms of having that discussion. Um, and the other topic um, was the latest uh, royal uh, arrival uh, in, in the form of uh, Prince George. And um, you saw there that uh, tweets uh, with regards to uh, you know the, the infancy um, you know, in the, the royal palace uh, outpaced uh, climate change discussion by a 10 to 1 margin um, you know, over a period during the summer. So um, there's, a, I think, um, we might worry in terms of disparity in terms of conversational topics as well. So for all those reasons, uh, the reasons that at least surface those themes, um, you know, people talk about um, social networks and social media very excitedly. And I think I don't want to throw cold water on all that discussion. I just think we need to be more nuanced as we uh, embrace that uh, conversation. Right. So at the end of the book, you kind of offer some recommendations or some potential remedies um, for addressing this. And I was hoping you could share some of your ideas in that area with us as well. Yeah, great, Sarah. I, I appreciate you raising that because um, as I began to talk to people uh, you know, around the country about some of these ideas, um, I've, I've worried uh, that um, I'm either going to come across as a, a Luddite, uh, not interested in social media, which isn't true, uh, <laughs> or that um, you know, somehow I'm just um, you know, naysaying um, you know, some of this excitement about um, networks, and that uh, couldn't be further from the truth. I, I do think that, and I'm inspired to uh, be looking at uh, you know, some of these opportunities uh, to remedy uh, some of these concerns. I think, in a nutshell, there are really some straightforward ideas. First is um, if you're going to hope to rely on this type of strategy as a way of spreading information in any arena, you know, whether science or health or um, you know, thinking about politics or other um, you know, areas, it's important that there is a built infrastructure um, first. And so, in other words, um, you can't just sort of snap your fingers and hope for uh, material to go viral if there isn't um, you know, an existing network amongst those that you're trying to reach. And so 
for me, that this, this offers a lot of inspiration for those that are really interested in community building, uh, those that are interested in um, subsidizing and uh, trying to uh, make available uh, neighborhood-based um, you know, networks. We see a lot of initiatives in that regard. I talk about some of those in the book um, you know, as well. So that's one, one uh, aspect of this. Um, another uh, idea uh, going forward um, is to meet people where they are, um, to recognize that you know, as much as uh, we may or may not like it, uh, you know, pictures of furry kittens, um, you know, jumping are going to go viral right. and mean something about um, you know, human uh, sentimentality. And, and I'm all for acknowledging that. So it means that certain types of um, framing and uh, emotional tone may be useful in getting information to spread. And then we probably need to have realistic conversations about, um, you know, dry, mundane reports, uh, you know, whether or not those are going to, uh, quote unquote, go viral. And so I think that there's effort that could be done in terms of framing, in terms of understanding, um, you know, everyday conversational dynamics um, that also could be, you know, really useful uh, as for folks that want to proactively use this, uh, you know, use this approach. I, I also think, though, that um, aside from thinking practically in terms of campaign implementation or evaluation. Um, anybody who's interested in uh, public opinion, uh, and certainly sociologists, political scientists, others, um, you know, ought to be paying attention to the amplification um, you know, and mitigation effects that those social networks provide. And I, to me, I think that there are instances in which this can really distort um, you know, public opinion in, in some important ways. So there are, there are great moments of silence um, where we don't see certain conversations being had. Then there are other instances in which we do see um, you know, certain uh, echo chamber effects occur. And I think that it, it makes sense to pay attention to those as well. But in terms of um, you know, trying to address you know, these situations, I would say that you know, projects and programs that are working on investing and building up networks, making uh, networks available, Know, two people um, as an infrastructure for later information dissemination are a really smart investment. And spending a lot more time uh, listening to and paying attention to everyday conversational dynamics are going to be uh, a really critical skill for uh, communication professionals um, you know, in the 21st century. Awesome. Well, since we're speaking of social networks, um, can our listeners find your work online or follow some of this research um, through your social networks or your website? Absolutely. So um, certainly people will feel free to uh, find me uh, you know, via Facebook or you know, email at, at RTI International or Duke or UNC or other places where I hang out. Um, but actually, you know, it's, it's funny that you raised that um, last notion, uh, because something that I've done um, recently is to re-engage uh, somewhat ironically on Twitter. <laughs> uh, and I have done that partly um, you know, to see uh, if you know, in an organic way, um, some of my ideas would bear themselves out. And so I, I do actually have a, a Twitter account reactivated at Brian Southwell, um, which I initially uh, looked at as a way of uh, seeing uh, whether left to its own devices, um, you know, what would happen. Um, and as predicted, uh, there hasn't been a tremendous amount of uh, activity there, but it is something that um, I think with effort and promotion, you can see that network grow as we have you know, conversation around the book. Um, and so I, that, that really is sort of case in point, um, and I it intended is that uh, you know, for the, the book, to just the basic notion that you know, without effort, um, you know, social networks don't necessarily grow um, you know, on their own. But yeah, feel free to follow me uh, on Twitter, on that Brian Southwell, or track me down in other, other ways. Well, great. Well, I do appreciate you taking your time to uh, talk with us today. Great. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thanks Thank for putting you. Part.